Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice of chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label. And for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. You know, I think we're in this moment of feeling empowered for the first time uh, in a really long time to take care of our team first. Because, you know, if we're just serving the guest at all times at the cost of our own mental health, that doesn't do anybody in like the change of stakeholders any favors. This is Taste. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Today in the show, I have a great double episode with two serious dudes in the restaurant game. Arjav Ezekiel is co-owner of Birdie's, a beloved restaurant and wine bar located in Austin, Texas. On this episode, we talk about Arjav's immigrant upbringing in Portland, Oregon, and what brought him to the exciting world of wine. Also on the show, I have a really great conversation with Harris Meyer. Harris is a New York City chef and owner of Polkies a really terrific restaurant serving to-go Jewish barbecue. That would be Q centered around the smoked turkey leg. His, I'd have to say, is the best not-pork, pork-pulled sandwich I've ever had in my life. Go there. Two great dudes. I hope you enjoy these conversations. Arjav Ezekiel, welcome to This Is Taste. I'm so happy to talk to you. Thanks for having me, Matt. Big fan. Honored to be here. Well, thanks, buddy. I appreciate it. I, I've I've had Tracy on the show, and I'll link to that in the show notes. It's a great conversation we had in studio. And we talked about Birdies, the restaurant you guys both run, and, and about the specialness of the restaurant. And you know, I think I'm not alone in, in recognizing this restaurant. It was uh, awarded many awards or, or acknowledgments by Bon Appetit, Food & Wine, New York Times, Esquire, and Eater. Um, Well-deserved. I, I like to dine out around our fine country, and it's, I could not find a better meal last year. Wow. Wow, flattered. <laughs> it's it's so true. Um, also, I wanted to have you on because obviously the two of you run birdies together, and there's a lot of shared group thing happening. But you know, while Tracy is the chef, you run uh, the wine program, one run front of house, and are part of the the kind of kind of the glue guy of the operation while while Tracy is cooking. So I wanted to talk about that. I also wanted to talk about a really cool open dialogue you had. Uh, with uh, with Instagram, some 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 comments happened, um, but mostly let's start here. Tell me, what are some restaurants you're loving right now? Man, there's um we had a great meal um, this weekend at a restaurant in town called Buffalina. Um, it's one of our favorites. Great pizza, an amazing wine list. Uh, we went out to celebrate um, Tracy's James Beard not this weekend, and yes, um, had a fantastic meal. Kanji is another one in Austin that is Oof. incredible. Um, it's just so cool to have like Caribbean food. Uh, Tavel, the chef there is from uh, Guyana, uh, but incredible jerk chicken, pepper pot, uh, the best probably roti I've ever had. Yep. Um, it's just super dope. Love to hear that you're going to Kanje and, and supporting Tavel because to me, that was also just such a highlight of the year. And, you know, that pepper pot, 
I mean, that dish, it's the complexity, which is a kind of an overused food term, but it's true. Just like what's happening with the spice um, in this dish is is something, it's like sweet, savory, umami. It's hitting all all gaskets for me. Totally. And I think like it's one of those things that redefined Caribbean food for me because I think mm-hmm. of Caribbean food as so, you know, full-throated and kind of punch-you-in-the-face flavors. And it was, it's really amazing to kind of eat Caribbean food with like restraint and finesse and you kind of see the deep layers of cooking that go into you know any one of those dishes. I think that pepper pot really stands out. Love you called it out. And we'll get to your upbringing in Portland, but I just had to ask you, are there any restaurants in Portland that you're finding you know stand out or, or noteworthy? You know you, you ran restaurants with your family in Portland for years and you know the, you know the scene quite well. Yeah, I think like I think Portland is to me one of the great pizza towns in the country. Um, so every time we're back, um, we make it a point to go to Lovely's 5050. Um, love Scotty's Pizza Parlor downtown. Mm-hmm. Um, just like love the pizza scene there. But Hana Oak is like one of the restaurants that I just love going to over and over and over again. Just because, you know, Peter um, and just like and their kids just kind of run around that place and treat it like home. Um, it was a huge inspiration for Tracy and me when we opened Birdies. And, you know, our little son, Remy, uh, is at the restaurant often. And I think seeing, these really successful people and friends have a restaurant where they could bring their kid to work and like, you know, kind of broke rules, quote unquote, by doing that. Um, it felt like we could do whatever the heck we wanted when we opened Bernie's. It's just very empowering to see that. I'm always grateful to them for that. I love that you call out Peter because what he's doing there um, is so um, unique in that that space he lived there with his wife and family within the restaurant space and we're doing an event with him for Korea World and um, I, on the pizza tip I, I I totally hear you about the pizza I mean I'll have to mention I like Ken's Pizza as well for me was pretty terrific as, as well what a great pizza town it's a, it's a truly great pizza town and I think the diversity of the styles of pizza I mean if you want Neapolitan New York um, you know um, a pizza, a beats, which is my favorite style, yep. uh, the New Haven style of pizza. You get the whole kind of gamut of pizza. Uh, but Lovely's 50-50 to me just always stands out for its like vegetables uh, and the use of vegetables on its pizza. And uh, the crust is remarkable, but I think it's just everything else that really makes it special. Mm. Well, let's pivot to uh, to social media. And, and really, I wanted to talk about a dialogue you had with a customer um, we will talk about it, um, but I, I think the best way to, to start this conversation is for me to quote um, something that you wrote in response to an IG post, and, and we will uh, kind of like get to the heart of it, but I really wanted to quote your own world, words here. So, quote, I've been thinking a lot about the unrealistic expectations our big little community of restaurants is subject to, and I do think while it's important to lead with charity, love, and hospitality, it's also important to set boundaries. So Arjav, why was it important for you to speak out? But first, tell me a little bit, what was the comment that started this dialogue that definitely got a lot of steam on Instagram. I saw a lot of reposts from chefs and, and really we had talked on Instagram and you and I decided we wanted to do a conversation on taste and I appreciate you coming on. What was the comment and what was your response and why? Well, the comment was a, a review that was left on Google um, after a guest um, had read our website, learned about the fact that we were counter service and a little bit different. It's seen our menu, seen our menu prices, seen the wine list, um, you know, known our, knew our wine list prices, and then kind of went on this diatribe about how, you know, 
he had to wait in line. He was expected to tip. And there was all this social pressure he felt to tip. Um, and then he said he, you know, claimed he spent like 200 and over $200 on four dishes and two glasses of wine. And my response was essentially, you can order everything on the birdies menu for exactly like $200. Um, you know, the cheapest thing on our beverage list is $5. Cheapest glass of wine is 14 you can't really blame us for having expensive taste and choosing expensive things. And you can't really blame us for the social pressure that you feel for tipping. If you don't want to leave a tip, you're entitled to not leave a tip. If you'd like to leave a tip at the end with cash, you can do so. Like it's a counter service restaurant. No one is saying you have to tip right away. But I don't think birdies as a restaurant should be held like liable because you feel a certain level of social pressure uh, to tip. That's not our purview and not our responsibility. It doesn't feel fair to hold us accountable to, you know, the, the larger tipping culture questions that you may have. Like if you don't want to tip, just don't tip, you know, but part of it is like when you go out to eat today, you need to plan on tipping. It's just part of the culture of this restaurant. We've tried a million ways of doing this. Danny Meyer, I worked for Danny, you know, at Gramercy Tavern and Untitled at the Whitney during hospitality included, and it didn't work. There's a reason people have moved away from it, you know, and, and I think there was this just broader question around like what it is that guests expect today from restaurants. Um when they go out to eat and sometimes it doesn't match with mm -hmm. like what restaurants really want to do. You know, I think we're in this moment of feeling empowered for the first time uh, in a really long time to take care of our team first, to take care of ourselves as owners first. Um, because, you know, if we're just serving the guest at all times at the cost of our own mental health or, you know, at the cost of our, our team's mental health, that doesn't do anybody in like the change of stakeholders any favors. Yeah. You know, so I, yeah. it was just really important. Yeah. I, I, I really appreciate you, you spelling that out and you, you said, you know, you made a really clear, it's like a metric, 95% like of interactions are positive. Great. But you got the 5% who, who kind of have a little bit of entitlement and, and really maybe don't quite understand the dynamic. And you know what? Listen, that's not zero. That's literally every day, 5%. And I'm glad that you said in your post that there needs to be boundaries drawn and and really this is not just pushing back against the customer is always right which is like a total bunch of nonsense but also it's just saying that we are um a group of people that should be uh allowed to have a, a safe working environment and allow for a really um a good experience not just for the guests but for the staff totally and i think like the point the the deeper point i was trying to make with that post too was that you know, our restaurants are filled with like really young, impressionable people. And it's really important to teach them how to like walk through life with charity, grace, compassion, but also like a sense of strength and be able to stand up for yourself when it calls for it, you know? And I think one of my mentors early on, um, you know, at, at a restaurant told me that like, anytime there's a guest issue, the first thing you should do is like, ask the person who interacted with them what happened because at the end of the day your job is to protect them yeah you know it's to certainly address the guest issue with hospitality and charity but like the first person you should trust is the person on your team yeah and that tells you a little bit about maybe about how like you should go about hiring people 
You know, you shouldn't have anybody that you don't trust. But like, I, we have a team here that I trust implicitly. And, you know, when there's an issue or whatever, like my first instinct is to trust what our team is saying and then go solve it with the gas. What was the response to this post? I mean, I know the industry was favorable, but like in general, did you have customers being like, you know, just stick to the cooking, man, just, just, you know, shut up? Or was it, was it generally received positively? Um, I think it was generally received really positively. Good. I think there were some questions, I think, around tipping, which is, um, you know, feels like every once in a while, like the, the third rail uh, of hospitality. Um, but I think it's a really important conversation to continue to have because, you know, for better or worse, like tipping is part of the culture uh, that we live in. Birdies has tried to address some of those issues by creating a completely flat tip pool where everybody on our team is tipped out equally. Mm -hmm. So the dishwasher is tipped out the same amount of points as um, a server, uh, as a line cook. Um, if we give someone a raise, we don't allocate a larger proportion of the tip pool to um, a member of the team. The business pays them more. But I think it's you know one of those things where restaurants today are built in a way that is unsustainable without tipping, yeah. right? Like labor is so high. You're seeing the, like, you know, as labor in LA, et cetera, goes up to 20 bucks an hour. It's becoming harder and harder and harder for small independent restaurants to survive. And, you know, one thing we did with Birdies was kind of reimagine the business model. And I think future restaurants are going to have to solve this issue of labor uh, with or without tips. Yeah. For us, like, it, that's the future of restaurants, it's, right? It's really, really, really important. And I'm glad we're talking about it and we'll continue to talk about it. I want to ask you, transitioning a little bit over to Birdie's The Restaurant. You know, I know Tracy just got a James Beard semifinalist, which is really well-deserved. I'm glad the accolades keep coming up. But you got all these awards and like all this recognition, how do you as a staff avoid like the hangover? I've, I've, I've kind of witnessed this in the restaurant world with, with really highly regarded restaurants that get best new this and best new that. But then the year two and three, there's a bit of an uphill battle, but I know you and Tracy are really ahead of the curve on a lot of things. How do you avoid that hangover? I mean, I think we just keep doing the work, right? Like when we opened this restaurant, like we didn't have a PR and marketing team. We kind of just, it was a scrappy upstart restaurant that was trying to basically like build a restaurant that fit around our lives, right? Like that would serve us. And I think um, we've been very lucky that Birdies has been able to do that for us, right? But like we started with this idea that like restaurants are not sustainable places for people, um, especially business owners. And that kind of leads to the, you know, the culture that um, we've talked about like a lot over the last five years. Um, but building a restaurant that fit our lives rather than our like fitting our lives around a restaurant was like step number one. And as we've continued to do that, we've like really built a team. And I think the team has our trust. We are mentors to, you know, the leaders of our team now. Um, and we've tried to build a culture where it's about the work and not about the accolades. Like the first thing we, you know, when we got the Restaurant of the Year Award uh, this last year, the first thing... We, we talked about was like, let's celebrate this today, but let's just remember that this award was for all the work we did yesterday. Yeah. Like the people who are coming in today don't care about that. You know, they might yep. be happy for us, but they're, they, we need to defend that kind of honor. 
like every single day. It's yeah. like the Super Bowl every single day, right? Yeah, and, you have a high reputation and you got to deliver. And of course, with, with high profile, it brings the critics. And I'm sure you're always looking for um, you know a, a new opportunity to impress. And let's get into some culinary because I feel like we haven't talked about the food enough. Um, at yeah. least definitely go back to the Tracy episode and hear about what she her, her vision of the of the restaurant is. But what's ha- what's happening right now with the menu? What are you excited about recording in late January? And I wanted to hear a little bit about this Italian American week that you do, which I think is really playful and fun. And, and I love that Birdie's transforms into different restaurants either for a week or for a day. It's like super cool to do that. Thanks, man. Yeah, look, so we got so we got back from our two week winter vacation. We shut down Christmas Eve to to January tenth. Um, we got back and, and Tracy was kind of ideating on some ideas on the, the flight back after feeling super inspired. And uh, we got home and she was like, you ready for this? And I was like, what are you doing? Uh, <laughs> and she said, I'm changing like pretty much the whole menu. So we had these staples, the dessert, like the the chocolate chip cookie, which I think you had when you came. Uh, Did I, I didn't just have it. I was like, I'm going to pay um, double digits if you want to even charge it. But for this incredible warm chocolate chip cookie on a plate, thank you for doing that. Appreciate it. Yeah, man, totally. And like we got back and she was like, I'm getting rid of all these things that were staples on the on the menu. Um, and, and it's just been a really, really exciting month. One, because it's amazing to see all our regulars come back excited. Um you know, it gives us a huge jolt of energy to have these like incredible regulars that we have come back into the restaurant um, and experience like a brand new menu. It feels like a new birdies for them too. Yeah. And our menu changes a lot, but we've always had these like, you know, the desserts have always been kind of the this one thing that people can expect over and over again and completely changing it um, has been great. Are you keeping uh, the tartare on? Are you keeping that? Or are you giving tar- the tartare, Tracy always says, I have not found it. I, I can't make a better dish than that. So we're just going to leave that on. Remind um, the listeners what that dish is, because I, I think it is pretty exceptional. Yeah, it, it's a it's a really beautiful beef tartare that's hand cut. Uh, but one of the really special parts about it to me are all the textures and the flavors that are going on. So it's got some uh, smoked and then pickled shiitake mushrooms, uh, Sonora wheat berries. Yeah. Uh, it sits on this rosemary aioli. It's topped with some chives, and then there's this um, like gargantuan um, carta de musica, which is a Sardinian flatbread uh, that's served on top that you kind of just crack, break into, and scoop up these um, pearls of tartare. With. It's truly special. Put it dish. in the Hall of Fame. Put it in the Hall of Fame. I love that dish. Yep. Hall of Fame. Yep. Love dish. Love yep. dish. Um, yeah. but the, the menu, like right now, my favorite things are like, uh, this beautiful chicory salad where we're sourcing Tracy's getting these greens from, um, a wonderful farm, just like 20 minutes from here called Steelbo. Uh, but these beautiful, bitter chicories, Tardivo, which is dressing them with this, like oregano vinaigrette, which like pops, it's like a tasting, it's like biting into an Italian sandwich. Mm. Um, it's really dope. Uh, and then, uh, something she's calling an Alpine beef stew, but it's a, um, beef short ribs that are stewed with juniper mm. and then served on top of uh, polenta and some bitter greens. So like turnip greens or dandelion greens. Um, those two dishes. That's like, really the, do- that's that's like the Dolomites, man. That's like I'm thinking Total. Dolomites vibes with that one. I'm into that. 100%. I'm into that. I, I really like um, the way that your cuisine hues through Europe and you got Italian American week I want to hear about, but then you, you've got a wonderful staffer, who was born in Korea and you sometimes will, will do some Korean food on your menu, which I think is super dope. Yeah, I think so. We, we, you know, 
you talked about Aiello's, which is um, the Italian American weeks that we do at Birdies to <laughs> honor Tracy's um, late grandfather, yeah. uh, whose last name was Aiello. Uh, but it kind of began because Tracy and I were kind of bored, maybe like six months into the restaurant. We're like, we want to do more stuff. Yeah. Um, instead of going out, like looking for spaces and opening a restaurant, we said, why not use Birdies as you know, a place to test ideas for future concepts, whatever it is. So um, we were like, let's, we miss red sauce. Like there's no red sauce in Austin. Like let's pop up as red sauce. So we had this idea on a Thursday. We had posters. We changed the decor of the restaurant. Oh, fun. Uh, Love that. Play- playlists. Uh, and then, you know, popped up on the next Tuesday uh, as ILOs. Um, and there was like a line out the door for like the full week. And it was like, whoa, this is crazy. This is really fun. Um, and it, it was really great for our team, which is, I think, why it stuck, right? It's like, one, it's guaranteed way to make us like a busier restaurant for those two weeks. Yeah. Um, but also the menu changes. Everyone's pushing really hard. The wine list changes. Everyone's learning new stuff. Um, and it's a it's a great opportunity for us to kind of like be like an alter ego of ourselves for uh, a couple weeks. Um, and then in the summer, um, I think you uh, talked about TJ a little bit. Yeah, TJ, um, yeah. Uh, our executive sous chef. TJ and Sophie, um, our AGM, took over the restaurant for a week. Uh, and TJ's Korean by birth. Um, and uh, she wanted to cook the food that she grew up eating. So she created this concept called Jibup. Um, and we did a set korean menu for a full week um and it was incredible to see how much passion and love she put into that project um with sophie who took over the wine list for the week um we've kind of done that successively we're talking about doing something this summer with uh my mom who uh would do like an indian concept amazing uh, amazing how fun a great yeah so you know one of the things we we try and do all the time is uh, to change and to learn. And every time we've done that, something like that, we've learned something about ourselves and something about the market here and um, maybe a little something about how we want to approach like the future. Yeah, I think it's it's tremendous that you are, are, are not staying complacent. And clearly that your staff is, you know, it's a job and like people can make money and they go home. But also it's like an enriching experience to work at a restaurant and the fact you can bring in all these different voices from cuisine around the world and, and create this environment um, I have to like think that, you know, like an Italian American concept, the fact that you're crushing the pop-up, maybe it's like re- a brick and mortar restaurant too at some point, perhaps. We hope so. You know, yeah. I think one of the things that like we love doing with birdies is like I said, like trying these alter egos, but it reduces kind of the risk. We can test these ideas and if they don't work, we can just kind of put them away rather than like having an idea, signing the lease, committing to something and then realizing it doesn't work, you know? so. Uh, we play around with a lot of different things that are kind of floating like through our head and, you know, for like we'll do, we did French bistro week. We named it after our son. Um, that was really fun and a big hit too, but, um, yeah, it's a, it's a great opportunity for us to just have fun and play and let the team, uh, be themselves a little more in, in their own way. You know, Arjun, let me ask you, you went through the union square hospitality training program and you worked the floor at Gramercy Tavern. Um, I want to hear about what goes into this because I just had dinner at Union Square Cafe, which is like really, it's like an Italian restaurant now. It's back, baby. It's, it's really back. is back and some incredible cooking there. And I can't wait to have the chef on the show. But honestly, what's it like in that program? And what's it, what's the big takeaway from working the floor at Gramercy and just going through the program? 
Yeah, I was at, you know, I was part of Union Square Hospitality Group at a very interesting time. Uh, it was a, it felt like a transition period for the group. Um, they were opening a lot of hotel deals at that time. You know, I helped open Untitled with the Whitney, which was at the New Whitney Museum. Um, and I think they were trying to navigate their way through what was, felt like kind of an uncertain real estate market at that time. Um, and, you know, my big takeaways from that like experience were just the importance on building regulars. I think that's like something that Trace and I are like obsessed with. But the things like that have kept those restaurants along around for as long as they have been, the fact that they have people who come in like every single week, the same people who like sitting at the same bar seat. You know, there was a guy um, when I was at Gramercy who would come in, who was like battling cancer, he'd sit at like bar six every single day, order the same thing, he'd get like a salted margarita, roasted oysters. Um, and like, you know, when he passed away, he had his wake at like, Gramercy Tavern. Wow. And those were the same dishes and drinks that we served. Um, and I, I, it always struck a chord with me because, you know, we think of restaurants as like these places now that are expressive and such a big part of like culture today. They're also like the home to a lot of people. Like when people are feeling sad or going through shit, like people go to restaurants to get away from life and, and like have, you know, a place that they can almost be like in a meditative space. And I think those restaurants are really important restaurants to a lot of people, um, which I think, you know, we've always wanted birdies to be that. And I think yeah. that was my biggest takeaway. From yeah, that. that's a great point. And I, I think what Ben Leventhal and team is building at Blackbird is, is kind of tapping into this and how, you know, your regulars are your core. It's not like the Delta one, like those are the guys who are the, the platinums are the most important because they're the ones giving you the most money in the end. And so to acknowledge this and not necessarily be all about the hype and like the one visit from the out of town guests. I mean, of course you want to treat all your guests well, but you got to like, you got to like talk to your regulars. So how do you, how do you actually talk to regulars, get them to come back to birdies? We give away a lot of free shit. (laughs) Um, I think that's like a, a part of our culture here is that like, you know, especially with solo diners, like when people come in by themselves, I think it's the greatest compliment to a restaurant. Mm. Like, hey, I'm by myself. I have a book. Like, where do I want to go? I want to go to Birdie's. Uh, we treat them like royalty when they come in. Um, that's always been a really, really like important thing for us. Um, but I think our regulars just like being seen, right? Like, it's there's this huge difference. Like, I've between like restaurants that you walk in and someone's like reading an open table and they like you know, are like reading your notes and saying, welcome back versus someone who recognizes you and says, Oh, it's so nice to see you again. How are Mm -hmm. the kids? Mm. You know? Yeah. Uh, How are Peyton and Allie? Like whatever it is. Like, I think it's, that's a really important part of restaurants. I think the future of restaurants is going to like, you know, as the front of house maybe gets like a little bit leaner and we think of new innovative ways of reducing labor. I think the maitre d' is going to come back really, really strong in the next like 10 years. Like the the floor person who can like help build regulars, who can connect with like every single table in in a restaurant, and that's kind of the role I try and fill at Birdies, which is to be the institutional memory of the place, right? Like I think that's really, really, really important in restaurants, and I think as we went away from that and kind of transitioned to tech, 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 yeah, I think we kind of lost connections with people, and I think that's led to maybe us losing the idea that regulars are a really, really important part of business. And, um, 
but but it's that personal connection. It's not oh necessarily God. the open table note. Right? I, I just had uh, breakfast at, at Michael's on uh, on Fifty Fifth Street, and Michael McCarty, who splits time between his Santa Monica restaurant and his, his New York restaurant, was touching tables. Man, old school, looking great. And I just felt like this is what I want in a restaurant to know the person or at least have the person acknowledge me because service is so tricky now. And and it's very easy for me to like shit talk service, how it's not good anywhere, though, frankly, it isn't any, isn't good anywhere. So I'm just being honest. So I guess I did just shit talk it. But frankly, I think just a little bit of personality, a little bit of a little bit of grace um, at the at the at the front at the door goes a long way at a restaurant. And I just it, it boggles my mind that you walk in and you're not given shit. And it's weird. Well, I think because we've started to value like the technocratic kind of background, right? Like, how are we reducing labor? How are we doing this? Like, how, people who are like really good at Excel sheets are now like managers yeah. on most restaurant floors, and we've kind of gone away from the idea that like, you know, there's people who have to worry about the bottom line, but then there's also people who need to drive sales in the top line, and the top line people have always been like, there's no better marketing than word of mouth, and like, there's no better anchor for a restaurant than someone in the dining room who can bring people back, you know, yeah. here's my card. Like I'd love to make a reservation for you next time. Like, those small little things make all the difference in the world. Interesting top line, bottom line conversation. I, I want to continue that another day because I think it's so cool to, to think about both uh, numbers. Um, obviously the bottom line is the most important number, but top line and getting like people to come back and, and, and just be in butts in the seats is so key. Let me transition um, this conversation has been void of wine talk. You really are low key, a real master and expert um, of the in the wine game. Uh, I'm sure you have certifications. I'm not going to go over those, but tell me. Let me just ask you, Napa Valley. I think you and I share a love for this restaurant, Mustards. I just want to get your quick thoughts on that restaurant. Uh, dude, Mustards is great. I just like. I think it's like a true like American classic. Like I love that they call themselves like a truck stop restaurant. I know. <laughs> you know that's. I just think the greatest, and it, it feels like the menu is like a, like stuck in the '90s in the best way possible. Like it's like there's a little bit of fusion. There's like a little bit of California cuisine. There's um, like that huge sign at the bottom of the menu that says, sorry, everything is delicious. I just think it's the <laughs> funniest thing. Yeah. It's so tongue in cheek. It's, um, the food is serious. I think it's Cindy Paulson, right? Yeah, she's exactly. Cindy Paulson Dude, is the I, chef. She's super underrated. Like she's been around forever and like, you know, kind of a le- low key legend. And, yeah. um, I just, I just love restaurants that embody history any restaurant that's been around for like 40 years if you're not like spending a second trying to figure out what they're doing right and learning from you're not like you shouldn't be in the restaurant (laughs) it's so true like restaurants that are in the 30s 40 years anniversaries you just have to pause and be like let me let me do a little autopsy of this restaurant let me actually ask you about wine because I feel like wine. Um, you know, you're you're clearly an expert in the game, and and really, um, it's at the center of what you enjoy about running a restaurant. I don't drink wine, but I do value it, and I have plenty of experts on. So, what drives you to wine? Wine. So, interestingly enough, like you know, I don't really have a background. Like, I have never been certified. I've never had a wine job. Like, Bertie's was my first wine job. Um, we knew we wanted to do a wine list, um, at birdies and Tracy and I've enjoyed like, you know, drinking wine together, our whole relationship. And she was like, you love wine. You know a lot about it. Do it. Um, so that's kind of how I fell into a wine world. So, you know, I've learned a lot by doing this job. I continue to learn every single day. Um, 
service is my biggest passion. I think wine is the second kind of part of it. Um, so for me, like the thing that really excites me in wine right now is actually like finding ways to communicate the story of a winemaker to a guest in a really quick, brief form. I think, you know, people, <clears throat> there's so much going on in wine right now. I think you had John Bonnet on yeah. uh, not long ago, who's just super brilliant. And I, I love his new book. Um, but I think there's this, you know, radical transformation that was happening um, right as Birdie's was, was opening, where there was like this natty, quote unquote, natty wine movement. <laughs> and there were like, you know, the OG old kind of classics. And the thing that I, I thought was so super silly was like, why are we putting these wines in different boxes? Like, you know, for us, it's like if, if wine is farmed correctly and there's a human behind it, um, we support it. Like we don't get too lost in the sulfur story or whatever else, you know, yeah. uh, whatever other lines you kind of want to draw. So for us, it was about finding great producers that farm beautifully, you know, because we think of wine as an agricultural product first. Um, and create basically a narrative that connects the guest to a bottle of wine. We, counter service can be challenging for that, right? So we have 200 plus offerings on the wine list. Um, and then we have three minutes to communicate that. So the thing that we've really worked on is like, how do we take all this information out there, distill it, condense it? And the story I always tell my, my team is that like, we have to approach this like you're talking to your mom who doesn't know anything about wine, mm -hmm. right? Like I don't like going to restaurants and being lectured about a story around wine. I want to give people exactly how much they want. If they want to have a long conversation around it, let's have a long conversation around it. But if they just want something that's super tasty that, you know, they want to drink with their food and they want like a light, fresh, summery red, let's give it to them without having to like tell them the whole story about their wine while their food's getting cold. Yeah. Uh, I think that's like a really important thing for us. I, I'm, I'm so into that kind of service. And I, I know it, you, you've set yourself up for a challenge with the counter service and the wine service having to be a quick, quick sell. And I, I love that you have John's book and Talia Baiocchi's book in your restaurant. It, it's prominent. And clearly you got that. You're a serious wine, wine connoisseur. And I just, I, I enjoy when you can bridge two service and wine together. I, I love it so much. Um, let me close and ask you in general, I know we like hinted at more projects, other projects with the, with the pop-ups, but do you guys have like plans to open a second restaurant right now? We don't have concrete plans to open a second restaurant. I don't think we'll ever open another Birdies. Um, Good. But I think... Good move. Wise know, move. Smart. Like Birdies it has to be like this corner of 12th and Harvey in Austin. It just wouldn't translate to anything else. It wouldn't be Birdies, you know? Uh it's the space that dictates it. So for us, like we let, you know, we've, we've been looking at spaces for a long time, but a space always dictates the concept for us. Great. Uh, will we do something? Yes. Or will it have to be counter service? No, not necessarily, but it would have to find a way to like continue to innovate around restaurants. I think that's like at the core of who we are now. And, you know, as we look down the next decade or so, you know, like I mentioned earlier in our conversation, I think, figuring out and solving for labor uh, is going to continue to be more and more important. And um, whatever we do next, I think, you know, we'll try and innovate around yeah. your reservations or tickets or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. You'll always be pushing the envelope, so to speak. Oh, I have to ask you the restaurant's an investor in Grazza olive oil. And I had Andrew Bennett on the show. Yeah. Hey man, nice investment. Like if you hear my interview with Andrew, like business is doing pretty well. So, Hey, good job. I hope 
you can do something with that dough when when Benin ends up no i know I'm, uh, I'm only kidding i have no idea i'm just like he's doing well you are all doing well they're killing, they're killing. yeah i mean that was a you know a, another kind of thing tracy and i talked about when we when we first started was like you know when we have a cash position like we have to like we're not going to go launch a cpg project project right now like we think that's like a really you know important way to kind of build a brand or you know, kind of diversify your portfolio away from brick and mortar completely. So we decided early on that we would make these like small bets on different companies in the CPG space as a means of diversifying kind of our cash position. So we weren't like just a brick and mortar restaurant, like that was relying on the sales of a restaurant. We would make small strategic investments that would be good for both the business and uh, for our investors. Yeah. Well, I love to hear that. I think more. I think the folks in the restaurant industry listening to this show will take take notice and, and maybe be inspired to to kind of spread out the cash a little bit when there is cash, which is not always the case in restaurants. Um, on this is taste. We as guests about the discerning taste. So to close this interview, here's a little rapid fire, fast and furious taste check. Arjav, are you ready? I think so. The best fruit. Do you count tomatoes as a fruit? Or are you like a f- tomatoes a fruit? Or I would say I do not count tomatoes as a fruit. Okay. Though it is a fruit, but um, I think it's hard to beat like great citrus in California when it's in season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have a favorite? Are you pomelo? Are you like pixie? Man, I love a blood orange. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Same here. Worst vegetable? Oh, water chestnuts, no question. <laughs> okay, so I <laughs> I love it. It's a brand new one. No one said that yet, and I think wow. Yeah, it's always um, yeah. When it's in Cantonese cu- cooking, I, I can't really mess with it. I'm sure there's a preparation somewhere, but yeah, I I don't I don't get it. I don't get it. It tastes like nothing. Like it's just yeah. like texture, cardboard. Yeah. Also, just like the shape of it's weird to me a little bit. But yeah, it's all weird. Yeah. Um, the best dessert. Um, a warm brownie with vanilla ice cream. I would say is like number one. Tiramisu close second. Interesting choices. I so agree. What do you think about the the Houston's? Warm brownie Sunday. Oh, dude, Houston slaps. <laughs> it really does. I mean, everything about Houston slaps. Yeah, it really does, and and really, um, it's kind of like it's kind of like Union Square hospitality in that way. It really is dialed. It has like a really strong point of view, much larger, of course. Mm. It's the best. Love that. Okay, your favorite American fast food chain? Ooh, Popeyes. Respect, respect. I love it. Your favorite Portland, Oregon restaurant? Uh, probably Han Oak and Lovely's Fifty Fifty. Yeah, uh, Rose's VL for soup is pretty badass too. Oh yeah, I missed that place. It was it was closed when I was uh, when I was there last, but I gotta make it there. Okay, your favorite cookbook of all time. Um, this is a, actually a very easy answer for me. It's like the first cookbook I ever got that got me into food. It's the Reader's Digest Complete Guide to Cookery uh, by uh, I think it was like Anne Willen. I think was her name. Uh, but it's like one of the great like encyclopedic books on cookery. It's amazing. Wow. It introduced me to all these ingredients that I've never heard of and butchery techniques. It's like got the most amazing photographs in it. Um, I love it. Yeah. You know, Reader's Digest, a very, very well-funded um, institutional publication back, especially when they were making these books back when you were younger. And it makes sense that this would be such a, like a canonical choice. Yeah. It was just like a really, spe- it was like one of the books that got me into cookery just because there was like so many beautiful photos of like, 
game birds and Scottish game birds and like mm-hmm. these fish I'd never seen. Like first time I'd ever like even heard of John Dory within that. <laughs> it's like the Guinness Book of World Records for a food nerd. Kind of like I'm 100%. catching that vibe. Okay, do you guys have cookbook plans? I know with all this accolades, I'm sure the agents are hitting you up and like you got got some thoughts. Yeah, but... we have cookbook a- ambitions. Yeah. Uh, no, no concrete plans yet. Yeah. We're starting to sketch out some ideas. Tracy's you know sketching out some really interesting ideas on how she wants to structure a potential book, but nothing concrete. Well, um, you know, you know, my number, call me, we'll talk. <laughs> I will, man. I'm going to have to pick your brain. Up. Please. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's see. Uh, what's your favorite recent cookbook discovery? Um, Lula Ca- the Lula Cafe book oh, really yeah. resonated with me because it felt and then reads exactly the way I want a cookbook to read, which is like recipe one page, photo the next, beautiful long introduction. Jason's such a talented and gifted writer. That's got to be one of my favorite new cookbooks. Yeah, for sure. I love my conversation with Jason on the show, and and it's a terrific book. And I was going to ask you if, if Lula inspired uh, your restaurant. You know, I know Tracy worked there for a bit, and like they do these legendary theme nights and themed re- weeks. So I, I think I love that you mentioned that. Yeah, it's a really special restaurant, um, but I've never eaten there. So oh. we're gonna make a we're gonna make a trip up to Chicago this year. So oh my show me. gosh, you've never yeah. eaten there. Well, I mean, never I hope you have a great meal. It's a it's a cool place. A couple sure. more. Your favorite city outside America to visit for food? So I, you know, one of the, the interesting things is like I was an undocumented immigrant for a long time, and then DACA kids, and then you know finally got my green card. So my first trip outside of the U.S. was want to say like three, four years ago, um, was to, to Rome and Rome to like, just blew my mind. Mm. Um, it's like arguably my favorite city in the world at this point. Um, but yeah, Rome and Mexico city are probably mm. tied for number one. Those are great picks. Those are great picks. Wow. That must've been just such a transformative trip to go to Rome, taste the cuisine and, oh, and country. Yeah. Man, it was amazing. Love to hear that, especially not to feel not to feel scared coming back. You know, well, yeah, I would love to hear that story one day about coming back and and finally getting the right documentation that was necessary. Man, um, a cuisine you would like to learn more about? Uh, Szechuan food. I think Szechuan food is like deeply complex and so interesting and nuanced. And uh, every time I have a, a great Szechuan like dish, I'm like, damn, I need I need to know more about this place. Mm. My mouth is watering just thinking about it right now. It's like, <laughs> that's a great call. Last one, your favorite sandwich. The best sandwich I think I've ever had is um, a Lampardotto sandwich. It's like the it's like a tripe sandwich uh, we had in Florence. It's like this green, spicy, chili sauce on top. Uh, it was just like the most amazing, like delicious, non-gamey, like perfect sandwich I've ever that's a great call. It reminds me, you know, like we kind of put Italian sandwiches into that Italian American box and we think about like cold cut combos and stuff. But man, between like a porchetta sandwich or this tripe sandwich we're talking about or even like a chickpea sandwich, like the Italians kind of fucking they own sandwiches. They, got, they know how to do it, man. I'm telling you, it's where it's at. Ugh. Arjav, this has been such a fun conversation, so thoughtful. Thank you so much for joining This Is Taste. Thanks for having me. This was a, a real treat, Matt. Such a big fan and uh, honored to be here. Harris Mayer, welcome to This Is Taste. What's up, buddy? Uh, I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to get to chat with you. We've become friends. We, we're kind of neighbors upstate. I know your wife, Claire Saffitz. We, 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 we hang out at the farmer's market. Yep. 
Well, can you remind me, I always forget how you just kind of appeared into my life in a delightful way, and I'm so happy to have you, but <laughs> I don't remember the story of how it happened. Was it was it like through Claire? And mm. remind me, please. I was texting with your wonderful wife uh, about meeting at the farmer's market, and because we go to the Goshen Farmer's Market on Fridays, I do most Fridays in the summer and the spring, and like, you know what? You, you showed up too, and then that's it. I, okay, I remember that. But how is it that you guys even started texting? Uh, we, you know, I know Claire because we publish her books. I see. And she's been in the studio a couple times, and we've filmed with her. And um, yeah, we're all fans of her work. And, and you know what? As a person, she's even better. So Couldn't agree more. And uh, yes, I remember when she said, I'm meeting this guy, Matt. And Who the fuck is Matt? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I found out quickly, and... Um, she just said that you were super nice and that you knew a lot and spoke very about food and <laughs> growing things. And they spoke highly about the Goshen farmer's market. So uh, I jumped all over that and we had a dandy old time. You and I hit it off right off yeah, the bat. Yeah. And I found some treasures there. It's a good market. Yeah. Unsurpri good. Unsurprisingly, the farmer's market where the farms are mm -hmm. is as good as like Union Square. <laughs> where there ain't no farms. In where here. there ain't no farms. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but... It was really impressive. I remember this one guy who cultivated mushrooms had like the best shiitake mushrooms I'd ever bought. And we also bought some uh, Polish cake that you yeah. you turned me on to, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's amazing. Isn't that cake great? And they have a, a spot in Greenpoint and they have a spot in Florida, New York, which is right down the street from Goshen. Oh, so and cool. It, it's so cool. Um, and we're going to go back. They, they, they shut it down in uh, in November and then they'll be back in May. So we'll be back at the market. Harris, tell me what what's good in New York City restaurants right now. I mean, you're, you're living you know, upstate and you're living here half and half or whatever. What's good right now? So... I am a creature of habit. I'm a little. Um, uh, I, I stick to what to what I know a lot. I and I'm certainly spending so much time upstate uh, more than the city these days. But uh, I, I definitely am here enough where uh, usually to go to dinner. So if there's one subject I can be current with, it's that the the restaurant that comes to mind where I had some really uh, extraordinary food that exceeded expectations was we were fortunate to get a reservation at Tatiana. Mm -hmm. And I'm perhaps like a little uh, apprehensive when I when things get all the attention and accolades. Yeah. And I, lo I love when any small business succeeds. So it's not that I was not rooting for them, but it's like, oh, three stars in New York Times. All right, like sh you, you got to prove it to me. And the food was extraordinary. And really in the truest sense where the f I'm remembering the dishes we had, whether I'm talking about food or not. I mean, I think about food all the time. Yeah. But the food there just nailed it. And, you know, there's a guy there who really understands technique and flavors. And uh, they, there's this like uh, crab dish with this incredible sauce that yeah. uh, I still think about. So Tatiana is, is top of mind for me. Kwame Nwache, incredible chef. Agree, like lots of press, but I've not been, so I've not had this experience. It's really nice to hear critically it's to your critical eye it's it's delivering um growing up in new york what's the classic when you think about new york city for you i agree with phrasing it that way because everybody's experience is so unique uh i lived in new york until i was six and then i moved to long island where i grew up but of course my entire adult life i've been in manhattan as well um my memories my childhood memories i grew up on west 12th street Went to, uh, you know, kindergarten, first grade there. 
we had a family friend that would always take me and, and my myself and my mom out to the old homestead. Mm-hmm. That for me, um, maybe it's just like the chance of the geography. It was around the corner from us, but lots of memories there. And interestingly, I was kind of a picky eater until I was 14. And after watching enough stuff on the Food Network, I said, I don't want to be this person. <laughs> right. I want to, I love cooking the food so much. I want to participate in every way I can. So I, I remember like, for example, I forced myself to like, enjoy broccoli but going back to the old homestead i did not like red meat at that time and of course our family friend went to get like a proper steak but i always got swordfish oh wow as a little kid which is weird because a little kid would you would expect it to be the other way but of course they did a phenomenal swordfish i remember getting these like big beautiful big steaks yeah yeah and kind of mild it has a little bit of lemon you're right oh well i lemon the hell out of it yeah of course but sword swordfish at the old homestead was uh Really uh, old school New York for me. Harris, what was your first restaurant job? So like I said, we moved to Long Island, a town called Port Washington in uh, Nassau County. And uh, I guess it was the summer when I was 16. Like the first summer I stopped going to camp. Um, And I was like a wannabe cook. But uh, I got a job at uh, the Port Washington Yacht Club. And the way I got that job... Like, I guess that's a negative way of looking at it. I shouldn't say wannabe cook, but like I was enamored with the whole culture and yeah. uh, through, you know, TV and things like that. I was online at a bank. I had like, you know, kids dime savings bank or something. And there was this guy in a um, in a chef jacket. And I just kind of boldly went up to him. I was like, where do you work? What's up? And he was super nice. Um, I ended up working directly under him. He was cool. uh, a man from the Caribbean and he was the garmage chef. And he was so extraordinarily talented. To this day, one of the most talented cooks and craftsmen I've ever seen. I'm talking like, not only did he run his station really well and really knew food, but he was an ice sculptor. Oh, I wow. mean, the guy was like a real artist and he was just, he was something else. What a dying skill, I imagine. Like, you don't see a lot of ice sculptures, you know, in, in this day and age. No, you don't. Maybe maybe we bring it back. I would love to do that. I feel, I mean, if AI is going to take over our world, that's probably the last thing AI is going to be able to do is like carve ice. A 3D printer, I'll bet you could do it. 3D printer. You, or, you went there. I knew, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 3D laser, I don't laser know. Laser art, but yeah. But in terms I, of... I have vivid memories of like seeing him in the hot summer with like a little... A small chainsaw, and I was like, "What the heck is this guy doing?" Shit. And like, ice is flying everywhere, and then it would be this, you know, masterpiece. But I, I will never forget him barking at me about sherry shallot vinaigrette, mm-hmm. and I thought I was so cool. Uh, <laughs> I remember he asked me to like grill, you know, make him like grilled peppers julienne, and I like cut them before I put them on the grill. Oh, and that was like my first like you're a bonehead. But I learned so much, and I and I, uh, I had a great time in that kitchen. I mean, and having a mentor and somebody who like spoke with this young guy at the bank sounds like he's quite the mentor. Yes, is he still around? Do you know where this guy went? Oh, ended up? I I don't know. Uh, I, his name? His name is Mark. I don't remember his last name. Yeah, but cool. he certainly taught me a lot. Uh, a, a lot. I was very lucky to be under him. Cool. But yeah, you ended up going to Cornell and you studied, you got an undergrad degree there and then you went to the CIA. So I wonder, that's an interesting, usually the CIA folks in my life go there right after like high school, but you did the four year and then you went to CIA. Did CIA live up to what you wanted it to give you? I loved my experience at CIA. I, I'm really happy with the the way that I landed there and the, the order in which I got there, like that I went and got like a business degree first and a proper four year degree. 
Um, but, you know, I, I think there's arguments to be made that, you know, with you have to be realistic about the cost of tuition and then what you might make yeah. out there. So I, I would say this with caution. Um, uh, it's not for everybody. I was lucky enough where I could afford that tuition. But I also, because of my undergraduate degree, it was an expedited program. Yeah. So it was only one year. And I think like any, it would have been the opposite had I gone to CIA first. But when you go to a program when you're 21, 22, your approach to your studies is very different. Uh, let's say you're I, working with like children at that point. Like I was, your fellow classmates are 18 and shit. Yeah. Yep. I was the old dude, but uh, there were, you know, I wasn't so alone because the CIA, uh, attracts a lot of, you know, career changers and things. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't so unheard of, but, um, I was able to get so much out of it because I was more mature and I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Whereas freshman year of college, you know, yeah. a little bit lost trying to find, you know, you're trying to figure out how to like get yourself out of the bed in the morning without yeah. your parents helping you, let alone, you know, doing the coursework, which oh my kicked God. my ass. What, what's your take on Moosewood? Oh, interesting question. Yeah. Being, right, Moosewood, the legendary yeah, vegetarian. vegetarian restaurant. In I, Ithaca, New York, where Cornell's located. Yeah, I mean, couldn't think of a more appropriate city for it to be in, <laughs> right. number one. I actually didn't end up eating there until I was a senior, I think, when I was kind of like, you know, looking at my checklist of things i have to do before i I graduate it was fine um (laughs) i i like i said i support all small business and i encourage people to go there and i think that they really care about food but i um i think gordon ramsay talks about this a lot you know putting aside whatever controversial what a controversial figure he might be the man is an extraordinary chef and a very talented cook and there's been things i've seen of him where he talks about how more rounded cooks just because you're vegetarian doesn't mean that you necessarily know how to cook vegetables better. You're either a very good cook or you're a decent cook. Um, so I think that you don't have to go to a strictly vegetarian restaurant to find great vegetarian food. Well said. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It gets a little bit circusy when you're like, this is the vegetarian restaurant, you know? Right. Yeah, I like it when it's more understated. Um, so you, you graduate from CAA. I don't, I've never asked you this. We've hung out several times. I know we'll talk about Creamline, we'll talk about Polkies, your businesses here that are super great, but like, where did you end up working and kind of learning the chef trade in New York? Well, I had a, a, a path that kind of zigzagged. I think I always knew my, you know, even going back to the original question of how I ended up at, you know, the hotel school first, I always knew I wanted to be a business owner and an entrepreneur. And being a chef was always kind of, or, or I should say being a, a cook uh, was more about uh, supporting what my ultimate goal was. It was part of the journey where I knew I needed to know how to cook. I need to know how to run the operation. I need to know how to do the business. So I think there was a romantic phase where I thought I wanted to go work for, you know, the biggest names and, you know, the the lights and that kind of, the, the lights and the fame of their careers kind of inspired me. But it was sort of not, it was, it just ended up not being the right path for me. Um, I dabbled in some more of the, you know, bigger name places, didn't, you know, stay very long. I ended up taking jobs at smaller independent places and found people, you know, you end up doing more and learning yeah. more because now as an owner, I understand like you're not going to give, you know, your caught that day striped bass to somebody who wants to learn how to fillet fish. And, uh, 
And with the margins, like it just doesn't happen. So when you go to a smaller place, you have a little more freedom. And that's the path I took. Yeah. I worked at a, um, a wine bar in the East Village for a number of years. Name some names. Let's go there. Uh, I guess when I realized I didn't want to work in uh, like a fancier kitchen and I just wasn't getting the experience I wanted, I took um, jobs in small places. So there's a place called Wine Bar in the East Village. It's no longer Wine Bar, but it was a big hit but long before yeah. I got there. And uh, Matthew Kenny, who's a pretty well-known chef and cookbook author, um, he wasn't involved when I was there, but he founded it years before, before he became uh, a raw food chef. Mm -hmm. But um, the footprint was there, and, and I did like a tasting for the owners, and they took a chance on you know some young cool, you know, kid. And uh, I executed their menu and was able to do you know new things the owner wanted. But I certainly didn't. Looking back, I don't think I knew how to cook at that point. Mm -hmm. But we then opened a Peruvian restaurant. Actually, cool. Matthew came back because he and the owner had remained friends. And that was a really fun project. And I got my butt kicked sort of involved with the things I wanted to learn, like construction and building a kitchen yeah. and organizing it. And certainly made a bunch of mistakes. But really, they sent me to Peru and I got to taste and try the food and got really into that. Uh, and then I ended up taking a sous chef position with the Bowery Group at uh, what was then 100 Acres. Yeah. And certainly the owner, uh, Mark Meyer, who, you know, very influential in the farm to table in New York City. And, and just operating restaurants and generally operating restaurants that had a sophisticated new American vibe, but yeah. somehow had like more casual fun. I mean, it was like, like really like threading a needle with Mark Meyer's places. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's a name that doesn't get talked about, Definitely but not. he was certainly at the forefront and, uh, of what we just take a standard practice in, in restaurants yep. now. But yeah, they're, like you said, the restaurants are, are great. It's not just great food, but the whole formula works really well. So I, I learned a lot. I was very lucky, fortunate to get that job. And the basically, I didn't work with Mark until I, later in my time at the organization. But the chef at 100 Acres at the time, a guy named Ricky King, who's a very good friend of mine still to this day, he's the one that like taught me how to cook and kick my butt. And he's from he was from Charleston, South Carolina, which is, you know, if anybody's like, why the hell is there pimento cheese on... <laughs> The Polkies menu, it's because of that. Because yeah. like, man, I made and served a lot of pimento cheese with Ricky. But great margin, I would imagine. Pimento cheese, you can charge a little more. It's like a gussied up cheese it's, ball. Uh, that's true. I mean, margins is is uh, an interesting <laughs> angle. With yeah. All this, it's it's it depends on what you charge. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, at Hundred Acres, we you know served with all sorts of market vegetables and like homemade uh, birds food crackers. He called it. Yeah. So yeah, we were able to fetch yeah a cool price for what is. But actually... yeah, you did a lot. I mean, margins would probably remain the same. I, I'm kind of kidding because I think of pimento cheese is like something you make at like a Super Bowl party, like as the lay. But then you could do a cool ass version of it, you know? Right. I think that's um, that's the best cooking. I mean, that's what I've learned in my old age is that uh, it's not the kind of you know pretentious food that's like about the chef and their vision it's about taking things that resonate with the people and with your guests that might have a memory like you just said like you know oh this is there's nothing i understand pimento cheese i eat it at the super bowl party but if a chef is good and they're cooking for other people not themselves what they'll understand is i'm going to take those memories and then maybe elevate them a little bit by using good ingredients or just a little more sound technique something that's not processed to begin with like making it yourself and uh that's what i learned from uh, Ricky with pimento cheese, for example, and that's the path I take now with the restaurants that we yeah. Own. 
it's a good segue to get to cream line because you know it's exactly what you're saying is is really thinking about the hamburger and i guess my first question is to talk about cream line which is wildly successful uh, one of the city's best burgers uh, when you're opening cream line i mean how the fuck are you negotiating opening a, a hamburger restaurant in a city that has you know some nice burgers mm. how do you i mean shake shack was invented here for i mean it's like one of the best burgers in my opinion how do you do that well thanks for the very complimentary intro. It's uh, true. It's all true. I I agree, and it's successful a lot because of of where we are. But we are a continuation of the Ronnie Brook legacy yeah. at Chelsea Market. Explain what Ronnie Brook is. That's a really good point. So Ronnie Brook Farm Dairy is in Ancramdale, and I say it with real phonetic pronunciation there because it's a. If you looked at the spelling, it'll <laughs> twist your mind. But Ancramdale. Is that Dutch? It feels extremely Dutch. <laughs> when, yeah. Or, I get, when everything is <laughs> difficult to pronounce, yeah. yeah. Du- that works. It's yeah, Dutch. Yeah. Um, but it's a, uh extraordinary uh, dairy farm. Uh, and in, in every way, the way that they grow the food for their cows, the way that they harvest the milk, the way that they treat their animals in life, the way they treat their animals in death. I mean, it's it's not pleasant to talk about, but it's extraordinary how romantic Rick Osofsky and the entire family is they bury their cows. That mm-hmm. has always resonated with me. And it's one of the anecdotes I give to people. I've never heard of a dairy farm taking so much care in their in their in their animals that they actually bury right. the dairy once it's, they've been retired and dead. Right. Well, because he's a romantic and he loves his farm and um there's nothing wrong with like making it profitable. I mean they have to be profitable so that they continue to supply us with, you know, the best dairy I've yeah, I've ever tasted, but you know, from a business standpoint, it's crazy. I mean, th- the animal has value in in death as well. I mean, it makes me think of um, Dan Barber just posted this last week. Claire showed it to me because we had recently went with uh, a friend of mine visiting from Taiwan actually to their lunch their lunch counter, which mm-hmm. I think actually just got a Michelin star. Which oh wow, totally deserved. Blue Hill has a lunch counter. Yeah, it's like if you wanted to spend a day at the farm. Oh, and up at up at Blue Hill at Stone Barns. It, yeah, it's there, but it's not part of the, cool. the dining room. It's like a little cafeteria, but it's it's awesome. But he just posted a picture of what they brilliantly call retired dairy cows. Yep. And so what they do, and and this goes, I, I'm not saying that this has to be done, but the idea is that there is value in. Um, in in the animal, whether it be eaten or whether it's sold for different purposes, in death, uh, to 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 their their meat, and basically they serve retired dairy cow at, at uh, yep. Blue Hill, and it's an extraordinary thing that shows that there is this value, and it's a more sustainable way of of growing food, and the picture he posted just had the most extraordinary marbling. So for Rick and the farm that we work with. It's very romantic that, you know, he becomes so attached to these animals and they've brought his family and the farm such sustenance that he honors them with like a, a proper with burial. With a, a burial and when he could be obviously making a little more margin by selling it for the meat. Because I've, I've had, I remember Barbara was doing these zero waste dinners down at the at the village Blue Hill and served dairy cow. And it's, it's, it's quite good. It's quite tough, but it's quite good. Right. That, that's... You know? Uh, that makes sense. It's a little tougher because it hasn't been raised. It's been exercising its muscles and yeah. producing dairy. You've been walking. <laughs> right. But, you know, to if you care about sustainability and zero waste once in a while, you might have to have a steak that's like a touch yeah. tougher. 
but there, it has its own character that might it's even be better. flavorful. Okay, let's talk about the style of burger then, because I want to get into the food details about why Creamline works, because it really does work. And we're talking about a burger, which means it's like patty, bun, condiments, uh, you know, the size of it. You know, what, what are you thinking? What are you doing? I, we, <laughs> I mean... I don't think it'll ever be done. We're constantly tweaking, yeah. but it has certainly evolved from day one to now. I would say in the last two years, we are at the best the burger's ever been. And I don't know how perceptible it is to you know our average guest, but for us, it's like you said, it's this seemingly deceptively simple food, but there are, the simpler something is, the more perfect it has to be. Yeah, And anything from, I mean, if somebody saw us like taking measuring tapes to different buns they'd look at you like like what the heck are you doing like this is crazy <laughs> but there's so much to it and we i mean one of the essential um things that makes our burgers delicious is leaning on um i mean of course the quality of all the products but reuse ronnie brook butter everywhere we yeah. can and it's the most amazing butter you can imagine i mean it's not even subjective it's objectively it's got more butter fat than most of the kind of European style butters you would spend a lot of money on. Fanciest restaurants around use it. And here we are in a fast food place, essentially using. You're doing a butter burger. You're doing the Midwestern butter, butter burger. That was certainly a big inspiration. Yeah, Culver's, which is not a great chain, but like I, go, I went to college in Wisconsin. So there's a lot of local places that do that. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's no secret that butter makes things delicious. So yeah. we. We have tried so many different ways to like, how do you butter your bun? What's the best way? We've oh, tried man. the rollers. We've tried mm -hmm. dipping it in melted butter, all these things. Where we are now is we keep some room temp butter out at all times. We use a little offset spatula and we really coat the bun. So that's one of the kind of techniques that we obsess about to make sure that our burger's yeah. really great. What about the beef though? What, what's going into the beef? And what's, you know, like we talk about burger blends. We had Pat LaFrieda on about a couple months ago and we talked about all the boutique blends that he does. What do you what are you thinking with your burger blend? Well, we're kind we're the ant we're the anti blend perf concept. <laughs> uh, while I mean I think that was so cool and it brought in like a revolution. Yeah, about, in the 2010s. Yeah, yeah. But it also even got people to understand that like oh meat as I know it comes from different muscles and there's yes. an actual animal involved and like we should respect this. I mean that's all great. It is and Harris like he opened up a world to like food writers and like people in the industry just thinking about dry aging all that stuff too in right. terms of the burger. I mean we had your average you know customer talking about like oh like I really taste like the amount of chuck that's in this as compared yeah. to short rib and brisket and for a lot of people they probably learned like oh brisket can be ground up and all these things totally we don't have that I'll call it a luxury because we work with the true to form with Ronnie Brook and that has been the theme of the entire concept it's about working with small local independent farms so we work with Rosencrantz uh farm beef they're uh in the way north of New York but uh, very proud that they're also in New York, mm -hmm. and it's a small, it's a small farm. We can't. He doesn't. Jeff Rosencrantz doesn't grow enough animals where you could say, "Give me, you know, a hundred pounds of this cut or that cut." We have a true blend of whatever his trim is and whatever he's putting in his in his burger meat, which I'm, which has a certain consistency, but but not as much as you're getting shit from Omaha, right? That's like. Or the I mean the Frida via Omaha, it's right. like that's a different. It makes your job really hard. The, the 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 variance in quality of the beef from Rosencrantz. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I think he does. We have worked out, you know, the kind of lean to fat ratio. But other than that, like it would be restrictive to him as a farmer and how incredibly hard that business is. If we were like, okay, it has to be this precisely. He's trying to make money. So he's cutting his, you know, he's selling steaks to whomever he does. And we're very lucky that, I mean, he raises his animals. It fits all of our criteria, humanely, sustainably, and all that. But um, it is uh, helpful to him as a farmer for us to say, it doesn't just give us a good ground mix. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does. We don't even get into that with him. But uh, we, early on when we started working with them, we got the fat to lean ratio down, the coarseness of the grind, and they've just been a great How partner. often are those trucks arriving? So he uses a different distributor, uh, comes through Finger Lakes Farms, which back in my chef days was, I worked with them a lot. Um, and so they have a bigger business with distribution. So he, you know, piggybacks on yeah. their trucks. So weekly or more than that, multiple times a week. We get deliveries like my partner Nick is in the studio and he just signaled to me uh, two times a week. It's just, I'm, I'm, I'm asking these kind of like detailed questions because I'm trying to build the, an idea that, you know, it's difficult. There's so many variables. You got two trucks coming from this farmer way up in the Finger Lakes region using a, a Hudson Valley dairy. There's a lot of variables when, when you're thinking about burgers, you're thinking about this, the, the city's scene. You know, most of those places are using more stable, consistent, and this is no shade at those farms, but their job is easier. A hundred percent. Doing it the hard way. <laughs> We are doing it the hard way, but it's cool. At the volume that we do, myself and my partners, we don't want to. I mean, the best example I could give at being in Chelsea Market, we we feed a lot of people. So the idea that we would be creating like ten huge garbage bags of like plastic waste every day is not desirable. Mm-hmm. That, that's not even the word. It's it's distasteful. Yeah, leaves a bad taste in my mouth. So we talk about doing it the hard way. We we spend a lot more money to have compostable utensils and all these things where, believe me, it would be a lot more profitable for us to use something else. Yeah. But it's, again, the soul of what we do comes down to sort of the Ronnie Brook example, and we have to honor that. So in everything we do, the the chicken sandwiches to the burgers to the grilled cheese tomato soup, we're always finding the right way to do it. And yeah, it's harder, but it would be more difficult to to do something that we didn't believe in. Yeah. It's it's wonderful. Creamline is a great place. I want to move on to Polkies, which to me it really speaks to like my what I value in food. I love. I'm a Jew, so I, I Jewish Ashkenazi cuisine has been in my life forever. And you're you're doing a style of Jewish Ashkenazi cooking that you know I'm not going to restrict it to barbecue. You've done barbecue in the past, but you're definitely you're thinking about Jewish American food in a, in a unique way. So Harris, tell me a little bit about what Polkies is up to. It's it's super unique, and Hannah Goldfield wrote a great piece in the New Yorker about it, and I'm going to link to that in the show notes. But tell us a little bit about it. Oh well, God bless you for that, because that was the, I mean, the greatest day of my professional career. That was uh, to get that review from her, where she kind of understood the concept better than I did and put it into words. <laughs> She's great. Yeah, she what a, what a great food writer she is, and a great writer. But um, Polkies is really uh, a soulful restaurant and it's like my my personal story as as a jewish american new yorker and that that's the story that we're telling and the food that we're doing um we, the the 
the story was that we we opened uh, during lockdowns as a way to create some delivery friendly concept, and we have every intention of making it big and finding permanent home. But it is available uh, for delivery only at this point, um, out of, out of a kitchen that we're we're renting. But it's not a uh, in store concept at this point, which but- is super modern. Having like a delivery only concept, like a lot of places do that. Well, it makes a lot, it makes a lot of business sense, and that was sort of we designed the menu to work in that way. You know, I bet a lot of people remember we were ordering in like crazy. It was already a emerging trend, but during lockdowns, that was certainly um, you had to have food that traveled well. And we struggled with this at Creamline for years, so we were able to from the ground up create food that we knew. Like you have to think about. If you can make something great and delicious right then and there uh, in the kitchen, that's great. And it will be exciting to you as a cook. But again, it comes back to thinking about like, okay, but how does this actually play out for the guest? So it was really important that we made food that was not only like inspiring to us as the cooks of it, but that we knew when it got to our our customers that they would be able to have that same experience, that it would reheat well, that it would travel well, because... Whether you like it or not, at the end of the day, that's the reality of how New Yorkers yeah. get fed. And, you know, with such a, a prominent, you know, Jewish American food tradition in New York, you're thinking about polkis, which is a Yiddish word. Wow, what's the menu? What's the concept? What's what what are you what are you doing? So it's evolved, um, but at its core is about my personal experience. And the truth is my partner uh in Creamline. Uh, came to me with the name, and of course, I considered myself like up to it with the Yiddish words, but I never grew up with the word pulp. Me either. Yeah, it's, it know, was new to me. Yeah. Well, was it the first time you heard it was through our restaurant? Absolutely. Yeah. And and I've got you know folks who like to drop a few Yiddish words in 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 phrases, but yeah, never heard of it. Right. So you know, they proposed this word to me, and it was kind of from the word the concept developed, and like you said, it's um. It's a Yiddish word that means the leg of a turkey or a chicken. Mostly a chicken, but for me, that's part of the evolution is that, well, of course, I love chicken as part of my upbringing, but turkey was always uh, a centerpiece of my life as uh, as a Jewish American, as an American. Uh, I love Thanksgiving. I've yeah. always thought turkey <laughs> is like one of the most underappreciated meats. I w- I'm the guy that goes to the diner and gets the Thanksgiving plate. <laughs> in June. In June. Yeah. Um, and it's a really cute word. And it also doubles in meaning as the name for a chubby baby thigh. Hmm. So our logo is like a, ch- a baby with chubby pulkies holding a pulky, which is a turkey leg. Yeah. But as I thought about the word, of course, I love that it paid, uh, you know, tribute to my heritage it's a yiddish word um but it also touched me with like my american experience my love for thanksgiving i guess my love for dark meats but also i started to think about like being true to my to my experience and moving away from like maybe the sort of chef restaurant influences and thought about okay all of my holiday traditions we have turkey and brisket Mm -hmm. and i love turkey and brisket I think I could probably do it better with like, you know, more technique. And Most chefs think that. They're yeah. like, most chefs are like, yeah, your version for these holidays, they're fine. Amateur hour though. You're like, I can do it better. I I, I agree, but I don't <laughs> want to put down all the like, the Long Island Jewish uh, yeah. 
families cooking these things, like they always got the soul right and it always stuck with me. But, you know, it's like, well, what if I took this brisket and I rested it in the sauce or maybe I sliced it differently with some professional technique? And of course, like delis and things like this do amazing things with the brisket uh, and have long before I was even born. But what we're going for is the kind of Rosh Hashanah dinner brisket and how to do it really well. And we, we have come up with some pretty extraordinary techniques. Mm-hmm. We At Pulkis, we cure and then confit the brisket. So confit, meaning yeah. to kind of slowly uh, poach in yeah. its own fat. It just, uh, you don't get any of the fat, very little of the fat renders out, which happens if you just roast it in the traditional way. And it also creates this kind of um, medium of like beef flavor. I mean, it's the opposite of like dry as brisket, which is like the the bane of most Passover's meals. Right. You know, it, it is. That's exactly what we're trying to <laughs> not do. <laughs> yeah, I guess I was tiptoeing around that. But yeah, like, yeah. Look, uh, I'm being blown straight up. Turkey and brisket can very often be dry, improperly cooked. Yeah. But I love them anyway. But why not do something uh, to kind of change the game? And that's what we're doing at Polkies. And it's cool. Our signature sandwich is the, um, we call it the I Can't Believe It's Not Pork. <laughs> and it's barbecue pulled uh, Polkies, turkey yeah. legs, with a Manischewitz barbecue sauce. Yeah. And truly, if you ate that, the richness of like dark meat turkey, uh, I love pork. I'm, I'm Jewish, but not kosher. I yeah. mean, uh, God forbid. But <laughs> uh, it's, you really wouldn't miss the pork. It's a, it's a delicious sandwich. I've had it. It's, it's amazing. And I, I really do think um, having a nice dark meat barbecue. Um, is a unique way to do turkey. I've never had it that way. And I feel like the leg is a perfect way to kind of enter into the barbecue realm with turkey. And, and, and you know, if you do, and also some people just eat poultry. That's all they eat. They don't right. eat a lot of beef, you know, or eat no pork, you know. True. And so, you know, we, we, to that end, we also have a lot of like, you know, great vegetarian foods like mac and cheese, uh, noodle kugel. Um, yeah. But you could see there's this hmm. like common thread of, these kinds of winks and nods, as as Hannah put it in that article. Yeah, there's these winks and nods to like American cooking traditions and like Jewish cooking traditions, and um, uh, you know when we were like I said, the the concept kind of came from the name, and so when you start to like put together a story, you have to kind of like put it to a few tests, and so I was thinking like, I'm, I'm not like about to like create something entirely new. This has to make sense to people, and then we realized that like. American Texas barbecue, there's a precedent here. They we don't know this here in our interpretation of barbecue in the Northeast, you know, which perhaps needs some quotes or something. <laughs> I had an instructor in the CIA famously said to me, he was my breakfast chef, he said, um, Texans don't know shit about pizza and New Yorkers don't know shit about barbecue. Yeah. And that's not to say mm-hmm. there aren't... I love Dino Barbecue, for example. Oh, and I, I think Hill Country is still pretty Hill cool. Country is awesome. Right. Yeah. They do amazing brisket. But um, we... Uh, you know, it has to kind of pass a few tests, like, does this make sense? And so when I... That was the final kind of check for me, was that, okay, there's already this tradition in Texas where they do beef brisket and turkey. Turkey is, like, a prominent part yep. of Texas uh, barbecue. And, of course... They, that ain't like your typical Thanksgiving dinner, perhaps overcooked turkey. It's this like juicy smoked thing. Because it's, like, it's wild. I mean, there's a big hunting culture in Texas and a lot of wild turkeys are killed, right? I mean, it's part of, part of you, the culture. 
are you are you goading me into a conversation about hunting? You know, I was gonna go there. We got more to cover. I love that you hunt, and I think hunting is is a is a wonderful pastime. And I grew up in West Michigan, where we have a very active deer season. So, I guess I didn't know that that you were uh, from Michigan originally. Yeah, West Michigan. Yeah, and we we have a we have a pretty long deer season a bow season and a shotgun season so all the like youtube hunting personalities i follow always talk about the upper peninsula of yeah. michigan what if i may ask you a question yeah sure what, let's go where are you relative to the upper peninsula this legendary uh whitetail hunting i am about eight hours from the bridge I, I, listener i'm putting my hand up for harris and i am on the west side of the state uh, and my hand looks like a hand or a mitten. Nice hand. Yeah. So I'm I'm here. I'm like lower left, and in the upper peninsula, we have but whitetail deer is all it's rural. You know, you go out of the cities, so there's a lot of whitetail throughout the state. Oh, there. I mean, they're everywhere. Mm-hmm. I'll have to cap that because we could have a <laughs> we whole. Go there. I, I want to, and we'll, we'll cap the Polkies conversation because I'm going to follow what you're doing, and we're going to have you back because I, I just love talking to you. But I want to ask you about. Claire, your wife, Ditto. Claire Saffitz, an author of ours. We've had her on the show a couple times. Friend of mine. And honestly, many li- may know you who are listening to the show from BA videos and now Claire's videos. You make some cameos. You make some cameos. You're up in the videos. I'm all up in it. You're uh, all up in the videos. So let me ask you, are you and Claire going to do a show together? Like well, a straight up show? Despite my best efforts, I'm all up in it. And I'll <laughs> tell you why that happened <laughs> at all. Uh Claire needs no supporting cast. Yeah. I mean, God, I, I'm, I'm very, very lucky that you know this incredible woman is is my partner. But, uh, and she'll appreciate this. She knows how to cook. Let me tell everyone, <laughs> she is an extraordinary cook. And the the best way, she is a far better cook than I am a baker. Put it that way. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, we we eat very well. And yeah. now that we're growing our own food. It's... She worked at Spring, right? Paris? I mean, that was her. Yeah. That was... I mean, she's she's not just doing baking. I mean, her baking is what she's known for. But yeah, the cooking side is. Well, she did do pastry there as well. She did. That's right. But she is no stranger. She was. She's no stranger to the pressures and the reality of what it takes to make food at that level. So are you guys going to do a show? The two of you. On the road or something. I don't think so. Okay. Sorry to report. Uh, I, what I will say is that the reason why I'm in it is because she shoots in our home uh, back you know, when she was shooting out of the apartment, but now uh, in the Hudson Valley, and I live there. Yeah. And uh, so I make my way in, and sometimes you know they'll ask me to come on camera, but uh, it's, it's really more about the fact that I'm very good friends with her production team. Yeah. So her you know, very talented producers, Cal and Vinny, have become really good friends of mine. So what it just happens very organic. And and that's why her show resonates so well is that the three of them are just like buds hanging out. Like yeah. you and I right now. It's super organic. I've been following the the pizza oven journey both um offline through text and just hanging out with you guys and online. There's been a great reveal on the video. But you got a you got a oven in your backyard now that Claire built. Yes. They, she made her first sourdough loaves a couple weeks ago out of it. Nice. And uh, they were awesome, of course. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I've been eat, eating like her sourdough for a long time, and it's it's amazing. You know, what she does with bread is really outerworldly. Uh, I can't imagine that it would even have an extra layer of it. But, you know, when you, you know, light your own fire and it gets that smokiness, mm-hmm. it got a real pronounced like crispiness on the bottom. And, the coolest part about it was that, you know, she built it. I mean, yeah. she's incredibly uh, talented when it comes to, like, crafts and, you know, art, mm-hmm. being an artisan. 
uh, and her patience and ability to follow directions. I mean, I could never. Yeah. I could never do it's what she did. Stunning when you think about how um, her books. I mean, they're they're so good in that they're interesting, but they're also so technical and and complete. They're 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 the complete package. Yeah. Well, I mean, I could test. I could uh, <laughs> testify from the back end of it. She is so meticulous with all this and yeah, and and test things like crazy. Uh, just but back to the oven for a second. You know, she learned and and I learned. There's so much uh, science and calculus to it. I mean, the size of the window relative to like the the curvature of the dome, like the oven doesn't just like work if you like put a fire in some kind of clay structure. There was so much science behind it. I don't even know enough to like relay what yeah she went through. All I could tell you is that it was like a year and a half long journey, and there's still more to be done to it. But mm -hmm. we are, we're up, we're up and cooking, and um, we've had some great pizzas. The videos and some great are great. Bread. I love seeing that oven there. On This Is Taste, we ask guests about the discerning taste. So to close this interview, here's a little rapid-fire Fast and Furious taste check. Harris, are you ready? I'm ready. The best breakfast food? Bacon and eggs. The best dessert? Claire's chocolate chip cookies. Why? They are. The, I love chocolate chip cookies, and they are the best I've ever had. She <laughs> has the, on the Venn diagram of like crispy, chewy, yeah. and soft, she nails it. Does she use rye flour? She does put a touch of rye flour. I thought so. What, I, I, explain to me, what would rye flour do? I don't know. I see it in recipes. I bake like five cookies a year. I, I have no idea how to make cookies. I just see them once in a while. It sounds know. healthy. I'll eat an extra It one sounds now. like it has like something better than average texture or something. Your favorite American fast food chain? Five Guys. Interesting. Wow. The, the, the fries past your muster? Everything. If five Guys for me is number one and there isn't a close second. I need to re reassess it. Their fries are made in-house. They they're, sure are. You see the bags. They're fried in peanut oil, which sounds... People don't understand, but peanut oil is really luxurious in a sense. It's very expensive. Yep. In the world of like the evils of seed oils, for them to use 100% peanut oil, peanut oil is, is radical and, and awesome. And obviously, they're still a very successful, profitable chain, so I, I respect that. We, we do our best. We don't want. We can't use peanut oil for a variety of reasons, like allergies and things. But at this point, people understand why Five Guys does it. But we use non-GMO natural oil as best we can. But the peanut oil fries and the simplicity and of of their burger certainly helped form our burger. I mean, I think the Creamline Burger is the best burger there is. But Five Guys is a huge natural change. I love. I love that you're giving credit to Five Guys because it, it's rare on the show. Must say. Well, and also. I have an extraordinary love of hot dogs, which is also like mm. part of the mission statement of Palkis, is to fill the void left by Grace Papaya's yeah, departure. Unfortunate demise. Um, but, I must say, my, my dad grew up in Chicago. My mom grew up in Detroit. Two very iconic hot dogs, the Coney and the Chicago-style dog. Do you have a favorite of the two? I don't even know that Detroit had a style of hot dog. It's Coney. It's a Coney dog. So chili, mm, cheese. So it's about like the the toppings on it. Yeah, definitely. It's it, it's it's its own New York. Sorry, it's some Detroit style. I am a New York hot dog. Got loyalist. it. Uh, but Five Guys does great hot dogs. Is what I was going to say. That's interesting. Thank you for the the bringing that around. Do you put what do you put on your hot dog? At Pulkies? No, just in general. Me, uh, I guess it changes order to order, but I never go too crazy with toppings. I think it's the the dog and the bun have to be in. The right proportion. It has to have a casing. 
which is one of the reasons why I love New York dogs and less so the Chicago dogs. And um, I, I'm sauerkraut, mustard, and ketchup guy. I love that you do the whole the whole thing. But I have been turned on to uh, high quality mayonnaise on a hot dog, and let me tell you something: it is delicious. You know, in LA, the Sonora dog, the like LA style dogs, they use a lot of mayonnaise in those dogs, right? I think that it comes from you know uh, a- Asian cuisine, like that's you. Um, and actually, my wife just sent me a video of this like legendary hot dog cart in japan which was is amazing this wow. dude is a legend but um hot dogs are beloved everywhere is the I, point. I think that's cool that you, you tap into hot dogs last one your favorite sandwich that's such a tough question uh in the world ever or that i is like a part of my life mm, in your fiber of your body <laughs> what's the answer what uh bodega bacon egg and cheese which i could wax poetic about yeah um, and if I can add just one more, there is a uh, Italian restaurant near us, upstate that uh, that does an Italian hero, and there is the 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 owner is from Calabria. Mm. He re- but he does you know approachable Italian American food, but like the the dude knows what's up, and he makes an Italian hero that is just so perfectly crafted. That's one of my favorite sandwiches. I love it. Shout out the name of the place. Nick's. Nick's. Nick's Pizza, and it's a fan favorite for Claire and her crew as well. We eat them all the time. What city? Well, I can't give too much information okay. about it, but... All right, right. It's in... Um, it's in the Hudson Valley. It's in the Hudson Valley. We'll leave it Nick's, there. Nick's Pizza, and... Uh, yeah, let's leave it there. We'll, we'll, I love a little... Yeah. You're going to tell me off mic, though. I'll feed one all right. directly. <laughs> this is Harris Meyer, this has been fun. Thanks a lot for joining this taste. Thanks, Matt. This is great. This is Taste is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening.